And you know, the Green New Deal, capitalism, climate change, the whole thing. Okay, so I'm going to attempt some synoptic pieces. Okay, so number one, um, nothing will shape the fate of the left, and more importantly, our projects of emancipation and equality more than climate politics. Um, there's no model or blueprint or analogy, and it's not because there has never been an apocalypse facing humans. There have been many groups, most groups have faced apocalypses. Um, but the political economic turbulence that climate change portends is just impossibly vast. Um, we have already warned the planet enough that sea levels will rise continuously for a millennia. So we'll be racing to decarbonize and then to pull carbon from the sky for 100 years and then dealing with the impacts of climate change for thousands of years, and that is the good case scenario. Um, second, you know, as Stuart Hall points out that race is the modality through which classes lived, Colonialism and racial capitalism are the modalities through which climate change is lived. Um, so there's no pure climate cause, no pure climate effect, certainly no pure climate movement or pure climate politics. Um, so climate change changes everything, is everything. Um, that means that colonialism and racial capitalism, which are also everything, are the terrains that we're fighting on. And that intersectionality can't be the punchline, it's just the premise. And then we have to see where to go from there. Um, Three, the gravest immediate threat is a green capitalism that entrenches eco-apartheid. So it's not David Foster Wallace Wells's complete and utter dystopia that the weather is causing. Um, it's too little decarbonization, too much inequality. So carbon heats the world, but bullets are what will kill its inhabitants for the most part. Um, eco-apartheid, like apartheid, will be both a segregation in terms of space and a labor regime something that's forgotten in discussions of American apartheid, which just talk about segregation. Um, it will be jointly enforced by state-sponsored violence and racialized. In contrast, I would argue eco-apartheid, which is germinating and exists, but we hope to prevent from dominating us. But in contrast, eco-apartheid will be more fractal in terms of space and labor markets. And I think we could define eco-apartheid more precisely as violently enforced racialized segmentation of a, access to the means of no carbon production, and B, access to abundant no carbon consumption. So racialized inequalities structure everything about climate change, and the imperative to deal with climate change will structure how we can abolish racialized inequalities. So fourth, the only possible, democrat the only possible democracy we can build is the democratization of no carbon production. Um, so if innovation remains confined to the vanguard of the economy, then the imbalance of economic power that follows from a concentration of innovative capacity at the top, that imbalance of economic power will overwhelm the ability of politics to produce equality in a durable way. So capitalism blends economic and political power in two key places, arguably. I mean, many, but two stand out. The shop floor and the state finance nexus. And we need to break that power on each site and cannot simply substitute state entities for private entities. Um, either in the shop floor or at the level of finance. So we have to democratize innovation, democratize finance, democratize the built environment. And I think we, all of our models are either obsolete, like industrial democracy, the last time the left was strong, we had a different model of production, or our models are just metaphors, the common small is beautiful degrowth, which have no specificity when you break them down. So inventing institutional conditions where popular sovereignty is the thing that shapes economic life is the big political question of the left, I would argue. And our greatest weakness is the issue of advanced production. So 
As Roberto Unger puts it, both Karl Marx and Adam Smith saw the study of the most advanced sector of the economy, which then was industrial production, as the key to understanding economic change. And today, the left seems more focused on issues of distribution, um, value-added production but in sectors that have existed for a long time, care work, and so on, which are all extremely important. But if we don't integrate those concerns with an understanding of the most advanced forms of production and how to democratize those, then we'll always be held hostage by technologists and financiers. Okay, fifth, the built environment is maybe the left's biggest blind spot and opportunity. Um, homes, transportation systems, energy landscapes, and so on, all these things must be rebuilt and, redes and redesigned. So the market is terrible at the built environment, and it means that often our infrastructures and landscapes manifest the worst of capitalism's kind of crony public-private partnerships. Um, utilities are organizations that represent this as well. They're huge enemies of climate action. Um, but it's also the case that massive changes to the built environment are incredibly politically contentious, right? From fights over densification to fights over wind farm development to fights over transmission lines. And the flip side of that is that the case for planning is irresistible. Um, and if we can combine uh, a kind of democratization of design and mass mobilization, we could physically build a terrain on which a post-growth society of art and scientific discovery and leisure and other kinds of pleasures could thrive. Right? But I think design is this key force which has been held completely hostage to private capital, especially since the New Deal, even then it was problematic, but now could both be an enemy, something we ignore, or a huge advantage. Um, I think we need to learn our fractions, since we're in our high school. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that the Green New Deal movement, specifically the Green New Deal left, if you want to call it that, biggest liability, is a total absence of analysis of which capitalist class fractions are more and less amenable to pressure, co-optation, and so on. That's even really true of factions of the labor movement, I would argue. Um, and there is a very significant failure, I think, in the Green New Deal debates to develop a realistic strategy for advancing both mass labor militancy and mass mobilization around issues of social reproduction which together could apply enough pressure to make electoral work worthwhile. And Jane McAlevey has been very important in advancing this debate, um, as have others, but it's, it's striking how much more the Green New Deal is about things we can do than how to build enough power to actually do them. Um, and even if the plans are thought of, and I'm guilty of this as well, in terms of a coalition they could create, nevertheless, the actual work of building power is essential. Um, seven, I think we need growth before post-growth. In the short term, we need a green stimulus to build the conditions of egalitarian, no-carbon public wealth. And that's a global project. And I think that means at the very beginning, we have to just be democratically ambivalent about how much abundance we're going to have, like the quantity and the quality of it. Everybody in the world is, a is entitled to public wealth. And that means we need institutions and organizations so that workers in this part of the world and other parts of the world at the sites of extraction are jointly deciding how much we are actually going to extract and how much we're going to actually build. Right? In other words, how we have free public transportation depends on how many vehicles we put lithium batteries into. And how much lithium we extract can't be a decision that's made by us consumers of energy here, but has to be a decision made jointly with people at the sites of extraction. Workers, indigenous groups, communities, and so on. Um, so to me, the most worrying part of the modern monetary theory discourse, MMT, isn't inflation. It's this Keynesian productivism, where they see the answer to all the problems posed by intense governmental spending the answer is that it will make us a more productive economy, which will produce more stuff. And there's absolutely no evidence that conventional growth can be decoupled from carbon emissions, or the production of plastics, or the production of other toxins, or mass species extinctions, and so on. Right? So the ecological crisis of capitalism is most urgently the crisis of carbon, but it is far bigger than that. Um, and then finally, thesis eight, the future really is up for grabs. So technological developments are astounding, but robots don't govern the world, thank God. 
Um, no one has answers to the problems of our times. I think it's true that the right has the money and power. It's true that capitalism is becoming a green capitalism. But these same people have produced a world of such visceral injustice and danger that they have completely lost legitimacy. They're structurally incapable of both decarbonizing and improving the world for most people at the same time. Um, the green capitalists still have 20th century answers to our problems. So does the left. Um, but we have a bigger base. We can and have to do better. And so we have nowhere to go but forward. Thanks. Great, thank you. Yeah, great. Um, thanks, Daniel. Uh, so I am going to talk a little bit more specifically about uh, abundance and what kinds of abundance we imagine uh, under sort of a uh, less carbon intensive, carbon free future uh, and under some kind of uh, in, in our uh, ecologically livable worlds, uh, what, what kinds of, uh, what we imagine by abundance there, and some of it's going to, you know, connect to Daniel's in places. Other places are, I'm a political theorist, so I might get a little bit more abstract in places, but I'll try to uh, be moving back and forth. So, um, you know, as, as I think probably uh, it will not come as a surprise to most people here, uh, environmentalism, uh, environmental politics have often been understood as a politics of aestheticism, of restriction, self-denial. Um, George Monbiot uh, once described climate activism as a campaign not for abundance but for austerity, a campaign not for more freedom but for less, a campaign not just against other people but also against ourselves. Um, and so I uh, would really like to not think about climate activism that way. I think we should think about it as a campaign for abundance um, and for freedom uh, and, and for uh, a for all of these things that, that we want, but for uh, a, a way of thinking about abundance and freedom um, in different ways. And so I'm gonna talk a little bit about that, um, about the relationship in particular of abundance uh, uh, to things like time and leisure, um, but also how they relate to work uh, and who does it. Um, and so uh, I first want to uh, just note that, of course, being against consumerism doesn't have to mean being against consumption. Um, and, you know, we, we want to consume things. That's what's nice. And uh, if you look at Marx, he points out capitalists are miserly. They hoard their wealth instead of spending it freely. Uh, the less you eat, drink, and read books, the less you go to the theater, the dance hall, or the public house, the less you think, love, theorize, sing, paint, fence, etc. The more you save, the greater becomes your treasure, which neither moths nor dust will devour your capital. Uh, so by avoiding the pleasures of life, you can save your money to invest. If you're a worker, you're encouraged to be abstemious to lower the cost of your production uh, to minimize your needs. Um, but you know, I say, give us the beer and the books. Uh, let's go to the theater and the dance hall. That sounds pretty good. Um, but of course, this is really about consumption of sort of material goods or consumer goods, or it's about how we spend our time. Um, and I want to, you know, kind of turn to that and focus a little bit on the question of time and, and how we spend it. Um, you know, Marx too knew that the struggle over time was key, uh, and especially the work, the length of the working day, is a key site of struggle under capitalism. So. Um, Sorry, going to give you another Marx quote, and I think that might be it for a bit. But uh, <laughs> capitalism oversteps not only the moral, but even the merely physical maximum bounds of the working day. It usurps the time for growth, development, and healthy maintenance of the body. It steals the time required for fresh air and sunlight. It higgles over a mealtime, incorporating it where possible into the process of production itself. It reduces the sound sleep needed for the restoration, reproduction, and refreshment of the bodily powers to just so many hours of torpor as an organism, absolutely exhausted, renders essential. Uh, 
So capitalism exhausts, it makes us exhausted, it exhausts the earth, we, we know these things. Uh, we, uh, so I think part of the struggle is to take our time back, um, to, uh, to have that fresh air, to, as Virginia Woolf says, be alive in the sunshine, uh, to you know, bird watch in the morning and snorkel in the afternoon and walk our dogs in the after evening and criticize after dinner, if we still want to. I'm sure we will all be criticizing after dinner. Um, but I also think that uh, here we want to think about uh, not only Marx, but uh, the Marxist feminists who have come since and who have thought about struggles over social reproduction, um, about demands and possibilities of life outside the factory, and how those can inform our ways of thinking about new ways of living. Um, so I'd argue that organizing social and ecological reproduction in a new way means uh, making, uh, uh, creating and maintaining spaces of communal luxury and collective leisure, so lush public parks and gardens, beautiful spaces for recreation and relaxation, art and cultural accessible to all. Um, here we can look to uh, the 1970s Italian autonomous movements, which wage struggle not only uh, over wages, but over the cost of living. Um, and, and access to uh, the things that make life good. Um, so uh, they, they tried to make the activity of daily life part of the struggle of left movements, uh, you know, uh, organizing around things like bus fares and rents, uh, meals and movie tickets, uh, access to the theater, things like that. Um, but of course, social reproduction also means thinking about how to make the daily work of making our lives uh, something that is less onerous, uh, more pleasurable, but also maybe just less. <laughs> um, because of course, uh, even, you know, even in these sorts of uh, leisurely futures, um, you know, the, the sort of things that Marx talks about, the, uh, you know, the having a meal time or the time for maintenance of the body, all these things, we know that all of these things also require work. Um, the, there is going to always be work of maintaining life, sustaining abundance, making leisure possible. Um, and these kinds of work that I think, you know, I've argued, uh, that we need to focus on is, and, and to do more of, um, or at least sort of center more the kinds of work that socialist feminists have long called attention to, kinds of work that keep us alive day in and out, that make life livable. Um, and it, it's exciting to me to see that there has been a growing uh, you know, uh, argument um, in conversations around the Green New Deal for um, care work, care for people uh, and for planet and sort of thinking about how we can have uh, care for the earth and one another as part of um, the vision of what a green job is or what work is. I think it's really important. Um, I want to raise a couple of things that we might think about in, in terms of that or, or ways to, to things to keep in mind as we <laughs> fight for these kinds of work. Um, uh, and one is just remembering that care, although it can be rewarding and meaningful and certainly is something that, you know, seems good to say, yes, we all like, we all want care, we will need care, um, but care is still work, of course, and uh, so let's, you know, keep, uh, how do we how do we keep that in mind as we're, we're thinking about these features, and, uh, you know, here I think of um, something that Sylvia Federici, one of the sort of early thinkers of wages for housework and social reproduction, asks apprehensively about some uh, visions in the 70s of a kind of low uh, and ecologically friendly future that are more reliant on uh, sort of labor-intensive modes of production. And she asks apprehensively, um, is this uh, idyllic picture uh, of a life built entirely around reproducing oneself and others not the same life that women have always had? Are we not hearing again the same glorification of housework, which has traditionally served to justify its unpaid status by contrasting this meaningful, useful, and more importantly, unselfish activity with the presumably greedy aspirations of those who demand to be paid for their work. Um, so enjoyable leisure and some visions of the ecologically sustainable future look to her like the kinds of work that women had tr traditionally done um, and that was concerning. And I think uh, 
particularly given that how can, how can you insist on limits to that work if it's held up as the answer to something like climate catastrophe. Um, and so how do, we, how do we keep in mind the need for limits to this work, uh, work that uh, uh, Simone de Beauvoir uh, said uh, was like the torture of Sisyphus, uh, housework with this endless repetition. Angela Davis thought that uh, no one should do certain kinds of uh, housework if they could be helped, that these kinds of work should be minimized, industrialized, and socialized. Um, and certainly we can think of that maybe being extended to more forms of work than just sort of housework, um, uh, while also recognizing that there's some forms of care that probably only humans can and should provide. So um, how do we think about uh, those kinds of things? I think there's also a question around uh, how do we imagine leisure at a time when we know that leisure and labor are increasingly blurred, when the sort of boundaries between work and life um, blur more and more? Uh, how do we sort of, uh, you know, when, when both, uh, you know, the, the sorts of, um, uh, were, uh, if you're reading, uh, things like education are, are sort of both, uh, you know, in themselves. I mean, not that education has ever been a sort of purely <laughs> for your own betterment uh, for uh, kind of um, venture, except for, for very few people, but increasingly, um, you know, as, as we all are kind of entrepreneurs of ourselves, how do we sort of distance, uh, take ourselves, um, see leisure as, as really distinct from work, uh, something that is not a self-improvement project, something that we're not uh, doing to exercise, to be fit and sort of in shape, or, uh, you know, reading to uh, be able to you know, chat, work, or whatever it may be, how can we actually find, uh, rediscover um, the things that we actually find pleasurable uh, and, and sort of treat as creative and pleasurable activities distinct from sort of uh, the pressures of, of our blurred life labor worlds. Um, and I'm gonna close here uh, on, uh, I wanna turn in closing to uh, some words from Pauline Newman, the socialist labor organizer of the International Ladies' Garment Worker Union. Uh, and in 1912, um, she has this great essay that I'm gonna read a little bit of. Um, so in 1912, she says, what a glorious time is spring. Despair vanishes, vanishes, gloom is forgotten. In the awakening of the earth, your entire being seems to awaken. Your heart is filled with new desires, with new hope. Your energies are renewed and you are a different person altogether. How would you like to run about the recently reawakened country rather than sit at the machine? Oh, how you would like to drink in the pure air and be warm by the sunshine. How you would like to roam about in the fields, dreaming and admiring the beauty of nature. But instead of roaming in the fields, garment workers sat in the factory for 10 hours a day. Um, and it could be otherwise, she insisted, a six hour day in the spring. What a delight it would be to leave the factory, the mill, the department store while the sun is still shining to come home and find the same little room filled with earthly perfume and rays of sunlight, to have time to rest and play and enjoy the most beautiful time of the year, spring. Um, but of course, to win this six hour day, and I think this is going to get back to Daniel's point about power, uh, the women would have to organize. If and only if they stood together in the union could they win an eight hour day in the winter and a six hour day in the spring. Um, I want you to remember, she said, that you can't expect to get it unless you organize. Uh, and organize, you can win anything. Spring is here, everything is alive, everything is awakening. Come girls, wake up, and demand your own. So, thanks very much. Yeah, so I am, um, my, what I say is gonna be a little bit different, and I'm gonna, talk um, sort of head on about the Green New Deal and uh, sort of the context that came out of what the, a, a quick snapshot of sort of what the politics are around it, although I'm, I'm assuming if folks are here they have 
some basic familiarity with what the Green New Deal is, um, and then what some of the fights are sort of uh, over that and what that could look like, sort of jumping off of Daniel's um, presentation and Alyssa's. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, so I think one thing to sort of underscore is just kind of how um, dramatic uh, change the Green New Deal is from what the climate conversation has been um, to date. And I think that gets a little bit lost sometimes in, in um, sort of criticisms of it. And I, I just want to name right out the bat that the Green New Deal is sort of the only plan on the table to actually do um, what it is that uh, science is telling us we need to. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about that in part because I think one sort of interesting thread of the conversation about the Green New Deal over the last several months has been um, the sort of distinction between uh, what we need to do on the climate and then everything else. So there's a sort of uh, rhetoric around the Green New Deal, of course, an economy-wide mobilization to um, get the United States off of fossil fuels as soon as possible. Um, folks are sort of debating what that date is. Um, some folks say 2030. Other folks are um, saying it should be later. I think uh, I I think 2030 is the date to be pushed for for a variety of reasons we can get into. Um, but um, one of the main criticisms in sort of the sort of center left. Um, world has been, you know, we can do the climate stuff, we can get off of fossil fuels, um, but why don't we just leave off all the other stuff? Why don't we just leave off public housing, uh, a job guarantee, these sort of quote-unquote add-ons? And so what I'm going to talk a little bit about is how those two things really are not separate, even in the ways that I think sometimes it's rationalized by um, advocates of the Green New Deal as being, you know, two shared projects that are both important in a sort of moral sense, um, but I, I think, you know, every piece of scientific evidence we have is pointing to the fact that those two projects are very much shared, um, and, the, and they can't be unlinked um, one way or the other. So uh, I think one place that's sort of interesting to look um, for climate politics is to um, climate scientists who are reaching sort of increasingly radical conclusions about um, what we need to do with the economy. So some of you might have heard um, of this thing called the Hot House Earth Study, which was released um, several uh, several months ago by now, a bit before the IPCC study, I believe. Um, and what that says is that um, sort of summed up a lot of existing literature about climate change um, and set a point that it was not, you know, altogether new, right? So there are a number of sort of climate impacts that um, play out as temperatures rise. You think about climate change as a hyper object in some ways. It's hard to understand sort of in itself, but just has a sort of um, really broad swath of effects. And so what the House Earth study summarizes um, is that these effects can sort of feed off of one another um, and create their own sort of self-generating system um, that we don't fully understand, right? Like we know what some of these are likely to be, but we don't fully know the whole um, impacts because our climate science is based on what we know right now, based on the world we've observed, um, not a world that is warmed by 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees or 3 degrees. Um, so we, we will know more um, in the future um, as the world warms in the way that it will. Um, inevitably, um, hopefully, you know, not as much as, uh, not as much as the doomsday scenarios. Um, but, uh, I got to interview one of the authors about, about this um, because I noticed sort of something in, in the um, write-up and I you know, read a decent amount of PDFs um, and don't have a lot of um, scientific knowledge and so I'm sort of always searching and my eyes are kind of drawn to the um, like more 
economic, social things and less to the parts per million um, and the atmosphere and the sort of scientific takeaways. Um, and what stood out to me is that the, the many authors of this, um, of this paper um, who are you know, earth system scientists, sort of interdisciplinary folks, um, some of whom have backgrounds in the physical sciences, some of whom um, come out of you know, the social sciences. Um, and what they described was a um, fundamental shift in the way our economy operates um, as their sort of baseline conclusion. And so I called up a, a climate scientist who I um, tend to talk to about these sorts of things to like sort of walk me through um, what all this means. And he said, well, you know, the conclusions of this paper aren't new. And I asked him, I said, you know, well, at the end, they sort of call for um, a sweeping change in every aspect of society. And he just said, yeah, that's normal. That's, that's sort of what all these papers say. That's unremarkable, um, which was remarkable to me. Um, so I called up the author, the lead author of the Hot House Earth Study, um, and sort of unprompted, just kind of like wanted his thoughts, you know, did not ask him about capitalism, did not ask him about, um, you know, his ideology or socialism or anything like that. And what he said is that um, the obvious thing we have to do to get greenhouse gas emissions down as fast as we can is to get greenhouse ga gas emissions down as fast as we can. That means there has to be, that has to be the primary target of policy and economics. You have to get away from so-called neoliberal economics um, and call for something more like a wartime footing. Um, there are similar languages folks might know um, around the IPCC's most recent report for 1.5 degrees. Um, one of the uh, authors of that said, um, getting to one point, keeping warming at 1.5 degrees um, will be extraordinary extraordinarily challenging, um, and we are nowhere on track to doing that. And while it's technically possible, uh, it's extremely improbable, absent a real change in how we evaluate risk. Um, went on to say there aren't good examples in history um, for such rapid, far-reaching transitions. Um, and so there's all these scientists sort of increasingly calling um, for, uh, if not sort of a move away from capitalism, something um, much different, to, for something much different to take its place.